Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian. Vaccine nationalism is the phrase of the week as the UK continues to celebrate its success in delivering jabs. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. As my colleague John Crace wrote this week, the Health Secretary Matt Hancock was all smiles as he told the public that not only was the infection rate starting to come down, but the government was pushing ahead with its plan to get the most vulnerable people in society vaccinated on schedule. In the background though, not all is perfect. The NHS announced that tens of thousands of people would have to be tested in a door-to-door two-week sprint to halt the spread of the South African coronavirus variant as cases were found across England. All the while, the debates over hotel quarantine and vaccine efficacy rumble on in the background. Will the government be able to keep control of this situation? In Northern Ireland, vaccines were almost the cause of chaos at the weekend when Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, meant to apply only in emergencies, was invoked by the European Commission. Brussels quickly backtracked on the decision, but not before a furious backlash in Dublin and Westminster. Meanwhile, Michael Gove is urging the European Commission to do more to protect the daily lives of people and businesses in Northern Ireland, who, as Lisa O'Carroll reports, was struggling to adapt to the protocol even before Friday night's row. Also, we'll be looking more closely into the £20 a week uplift of the Universal Credit Scheme. Will it stay or will it go? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, as the government considers postcode coronavirus testing, a Labour Party leak shows plans to use patriotism more. I'm joined by my colleague Sonia Soda, the Observer's chief leader writer, to discuss what's been happening this week. Sonia, it's lovely to have you on. Maybe we should start with that Labour leak that our colleague Aditya Chakraborty got hold of last night. Um, it's obviously some quite interesting thinking going on inside the Labour Party at the moment, isn't there? And the mention of flags and veterans and smart clothes. And we should just say the Labour Party has insisted the document is not official strategy, but something produced for them by an external agency. Yes, that's right. So uh, what the leak was, was of sort of some internal research that's uh, been happening within Labour, as you'd expect at this stage of opposition. Uh, Lots of focus groups up and down the country, particularly in the seats that Labour wants to win back from the Conservatives and that it thinks may be at risk to the Conservatives in the next election. And what these focus groups showed were two things, really. First of all, that Labour, you know, people have still have quite negative perceptions of Labour, which are a sort of hang up from the last kind of five or six years or so. Uh, so they're not that clear on on what it stands for. And they're not sure about it in relation to kind of being proud of being British. And so really what this kind of internal strategy memo uh, was saying was that Labour and Keir Starmer 
are going to be reassociating themselves with patriotism, with the Union Jack, with pride in the armed forces, uh, with, as well, as you mentioned, wearing smart clothes. That sounds like a, a bit of a dig at Jeremy Corbyn, I suppose, that, th- that this is what the party is going to be doing going forward. So it's caused quite a lot of a massive debate on Twitter and social media, quite a lot of consternation, I think, in some parts of the party. But you've really got to ask... You know, out there in the wider world, this probably isn't cutting through with voters. And for voters, what it would probably feel like is there are a few more Union Jacks in the background uh, when shadow ministers sort of uh, do questions from home in Parliament. And do you, Sonia, do you think it's right? Do you think, I mean, it's been talked about for a long time, this, hasn't it? I think it was talked about a bit under Ed Miliband. It was certainly talked about under Gordon Brown, this sense of, you know, whether Labour was proud of being British, all these kinds of issues have been talked about for a very long time. Do you think there's something right about that? I know, for example, some of those Labour MPs who lost their seat in 2019 did say things about a, a particular feeling that perhaps the party wasn't patriotic enough, wasn't proud enough of being British. Is that something Labour needs to deal with, do you think? I do think it's important because I don't think somebody gets elected prime minister unless people think they do feel a bit patriotic and they're proud to be British and they have a sense of pride in their country. I think there is an issue when Labour leaders inauthentically try and ape the Conservatives for a sort of, you know, a patriotism uh, trump card. To be fair to Keir Starmer, I just don't think that we know that that's what he's going to be doing yet. I think it's far too early to tell. I don't think it's a surprise that the Labour Party is concerned about how it's viewed on these things and is thinking about these things. Um, I do think, though, there's there's a slight word of caution for Labour here, though. So um, the academic Tim Bale did some really interesting research on the attitudes of voters who switch from Conservative Labour in 2019, both in terms of economic values and more social and cultural values. And what he found was that on the social and cultural values, um, those switches are much closer to um, the sort of heart of the Tory party, you know, Tory MPs and Tory activists on social and cultural values, but that they're actually closer to Labour when it comes to economic values on things like redistribution and inequality and investment in public services. So I think it's true that Labour kind of needs to address this deficit in terms of patriotism like you you know you can't really have someone running to be prime minister that the public perceive perhaps is a bit you know ashamed to uh, to be sort of or or a bit icky feels like the union jack is a bit icky or whatever like that would be really really damaging so Labour's got to kind of neutralize that but I think it would be Labour can't really win an election by trying to fight the conservatives um, and trying to sort of be more in line with those um, than the conservatives with those voters on social and cultural values it's really got to try Try and make sure that the next general election is on the territory of economic values. Um, so that would be my sort of word of caution to Labour on this, I think. Mm, and there was also a bit of uncertainty about Keir Starmer himself, wasn't there? Maybe that's not surprising. He's been in charge for less than a year, but there seems to be a sense among the public they don't quite know what he stands for. He sits on the fence a bit. I mean, he's had a very, very difficult wicket, hasn't he? Because of the pandemic, it's a difficult time to be opposition leader. But, you know, is there time for him to make his mark with the public and for them to understand more what he what he's about? I think there's absolutely time. And I think it's always really difficult to sort of judge an opposition leader in some ways at this stage of a parliament. He's only been around for just over a year. He's had really limited opportunity to sort of, you know, talk directly to voters and um, for them to get a sense of what he's about. 
some people think that Labour hasn't actually been critical enough of this government, given some of the dreadful mistakes they've made, but it also makes it quite hard to, to cut through and get your message across. So I, I do think it's it's you know it's not fair to judge him at this point in the parliament yet that said i do think there is some fair critique which is that i think they could have done a bit better around having a sort of good narrative i mean not a good uh, not a good narrative but like a sort of a clearer narrative about what's gone wrong with the government um during this pandemic and sort of sticking to that line it does feel like they've jumped around a little bit yes and you think of the way that the Conservatives were incredibly good in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, weren't they, of, of developing a kind of story which is about, was about, you know, Labour were too profligate and that, that was why we ended up in this mess. And that story really, really struck and stuck and it came to sort of define the next general election, didn't it? But it, I'm not sure, well, we, we don't yet know how people will remember this pandemic in hindsight and, and what it will mean for politics, do we? Yeah, and I think the thing is that the 2008 financial crisis happened just two years out of a general election and we're still sort of three to four years away from the next, you know, when the pandemic struck, we were still four years away, really, from a general election. So um, I I think it's really hard to know what the country is going to feel like going into the next general election. My suspicion is, very sadly, I think the economy is going to be feeling quite grim. I think there's going to be, um, you know, a recovery period once we're all vaccinated and the economy starts opening up again. But I think we're going to feel the real long term effects, both of the pandemic and of Brexit, um, sort of going into the next general election. So there's going to be lots of people for whom, you know, life just isn't feeling that great compared to where we were sort of maybe 10 years ago, um, uh, even though things weren't that great 10 years ago either. Um, so I think that's going to be difficult for the Conservatives. And, you know, that's where maybe Labour's got something to offer. But it's really hard for Labour at the moment to carve that clear narrative. I think they could have done a better job with the pandemic. But, you know, the debate is just the political debate just isn't going to be where it is in, you know, three years time. Because um, there's just so much to happen yet, you know, in the next parliament, uh, in this parliament, rather. So um, it is more difficult for them than it was for the Conservatives in 2008. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and lots of work for Labour to do in the in the coming years in the run up to 2024, if the if the parliament lasts that long. Um, Sonia, one of the issues Labour has been highlighting this week is the cladding scandal, isn't it? There, there was this independent task force saying over 11 million people may be living in unsafe homes. Um, you know, the Grenfell, inqu- Grenfell inquiry is still going on, but it's extraordinary, really, that was, isn't it, that politicians haven't managed to get to grips with this? Yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, we have this awful national tragedy in which 72 people died in the most horrific circumstances imaginable. It was a real never again moment. People, you know, were saying we're never going to let this happen again. There were clearly massive issues here. How did a building get wrapped in flammable cladding that just kind of went up in flame and cost all those lives? You know, those those deaths were preventable. Um, And yet we're in this situation three and a half years later where we know, um, thanks to Grenfell, that there are millions of people living in in housing that is a significant fire risk. And nobody is sort of picking up the tab or saying, you know, we've just got to to resolve this. And some estimates are that the total bill for um, sort of making all these buildings safe is in the order of 16 billion pounds. And that is gonna take a decade to fix um, because there's sort of a real shortage of people to do this work and stuff. Now that is the point at which, it's like with the banking crisis, it's been a massive, massive private sector 
failure here. Part of it is down to unscrupulous builders and developers. Part of it is down to a failure of government regulation. It is absolutely not the fault of people who saved and saved and, you know, bought their first flat and are now facing bankruptcy. But the government at the moment just seems to be refusing to do more. I think they will move on this. I think it's really great that Labour have highlighted this, but I don't think it will be the Labour sort of pushing that moves the Conservatives. I I hope they're going to move. And I think if they will move, it will be because of backbench Conservative MPs saying, we've got people in our constituency, people who are potential Conservative voters who are literally facing bankruptcy over this and they are never going to vote Conservative again. And, And I suspect that if the government and if Number 10 move a bit on this, it will be because of that sort of pressure uh, from backbench MPs. Sonia, let's talk about the pandemic now. Over 80,000 people are going to be subjected to -to door-to-door testing, aren't they, due to these concerns that that the South African variant has somehow reached the UK. And there are also worries that the the virus here is mutating or mutations are mutating. Uh, How does the government try and keep a grip on this as we vaccinate more and more people? So the government is in, you know, the answer that the government's really looking to is is this sort of mass community testing and a type of testing that can identify the new variants. Um, so you try and identify them, stop them spreading. I think the real concern is, is that some of these um, really infectious variants, like from South Africa, that may be, um, you know, more resistant to, uh, a bit more resistant to vaccines, for example, um, uh, they, uh, they are not just being brought in through travel now um, they are actually spreading in the community and scientists have made the point once you get to that point it's really it's really like trying to stop the you know horse after the you know it's bolted through the stable door um you know it's really difficult to do but that is what the government is trying to do by rolling out this like door-to-door testing and identifying people who test positive for the new variants and basically getting them to kind of self-isolate you know there are a couple of things that that sort of opposition politicians and scientists are saying about this and experts. Um, The first is, why didn't the government act sooner on international travel and really clamping down on international travel like some other countries have done? So we had um, our scientific advisory um, body telling the government that the only real fail-safe way of stopping kind of variants being imported from abroad is to be much, much stricter on international travel and to um, you know do things, for example, like having compulsory quarantine in a hotel near the airport so you don't have people travelling home on public transport, potentially bringing um, new, more infectious variants in. Um, so I think there are serious questions from government, and the government has always resisted kind of doing that, and um, it's been slow. It's now talking about hotel quarantine, but not for until mid-February, and for people coming from some hotspot areas, not sort of a, a universal thing. And obviously, the danger is is that by the time you've figured out there's a new, more dangerous variant in another country, someone might have already brought it into the UK. So I think there are real questions for the government. Has it got the balance right? Is it trying to do too much after the fact? Or could it be doing more um, by sort of putting uh, temporary but quite heavy restrictions on international travel? Meanwhile, in many homes, Sonia, um, parents 
I say this with a slightly pained tone of voice, but parents are struggling to uh, manage their jobs alongside homeschooling their children. Um, there was a real kind of shocking report, really, from the Institute for Fiscal Studies this week, wasn't there, saying, you know, children face losing a, a total of £350 billion of earnings between them in their lifetime and unless the government somehow helps them to catch up, you know, because of the lost schooling that they've had. One of the recommendations was for kids to repeat a year of school. Does that make sense, do you think? Um, I think it could be an option for some children, but I think it wouldn't work as a sort of blanket response. There'd be sort of massive capacity issues. Um, There are children who will have fallen behind a lot more than others. I think really a better solution is, I mean, I I, I think there there, there does need to be some really creative thinking around older age groups and what happens to kids who, you know, age sort of between 15 and 18 who've missed a whole year of school and college. And, you know, maybe, for example, for young people going to university, there needs to be like three foundation years and that could be put on by universities, for example. So there does need to be some creative thinking. I think for younger age groups, the really sort of key thing is thinking about catch up and investing in catch up. And, you know, this IFS report was just not a surprise to me at all. Like, I've been saying from the beginning, children and young people, they're, you know, the, the paradox of this pandemic is that they're least at risk from a health perspective, a direct health perspective from the virus, but they are going to be the generation carrying the biggest burden of this pandemic into the future. And it is literally astounding to me that we've got a government that has not put more thought into how to mitigate the impacts of the pandemic on them. And at various points, we at The Observer have sort of, you know, we've written editorials setting out a manifesto for children and young people in the pandemic we did one early last summer which said you know these are the things that the government needs to be doing for children and young people you know where is the program of structured outdoor activities over last summer when things felt a little bit more normal for kids who've missed weeks and weeks of school there was you know there was nothing and you know the the money that's been invested in catch-up tuition is as you know the IFS points out it is a fraction of what's needed we should be throwing money it's money well spent at children and young people in thinking about how to mitigate the harm to this pandemic. And it really, really worries me that this is a government that seems to completely lack any energy, creativity, drive to do this for this generation of children and young people. It doesn't have to be like this. And Sonia, we shouldn't let this week pass without marking the passing of Captain Sir Tom Moore, who became a bit of a lockdown legend. It sort of came to represent, didn't he, some of the good things in a really, really bad time and united really politicians on all sides and and people on all sides, really, in in marking his passing this week, didn't it? Absolutely. And it's kind of been one of the things that I suppose has been lovely to see um, this week. And I think you're right. I think the reason why it sort of he captured so many people's hearts and um, why this has been a moment that so many people kind of want to mark is because I think he represents that sort of community spirit um, that we saw quite a lot in the especially in in the first lockdown um, you know where people just kind of pitched in and did things and wow he did something like really amazing raising millions tens of millions for the NHS. Sonia Soda as always thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure thank you Heather. After the break Lisa O'Carroll, our Brexit correspondent, looks at what's happening at the Northern Irish border. And I'm joined by two experts to discuss Rishi Sunak's upcoming battle over universal credit. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. A month after the Brexit transition officially finished, the European Commission, concerned about vaccine supplies, caused fury by triggering Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Separately on Monday night, we learned that Brexit checks on animal and food products arriving into Belfast and Larne ports have been suspended amid fears over the safety of staff. EU officials are also being withdrawn from the ports in Northern Ireland in the light of reported threats from loyalists. Speaking in the Commons on Tuesday, the Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove said he welcomed the fact that the EU had backed down quickly over Article 16, but said trust had been eroded. Speaking in the Commons on Tuesday, the Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove said he welcomed the fact that the EU had backed down quickly over Article 16, but said trust had been eroded. As the DUP calls for the Northern Ireland Protocol to be scrapped altogether, Gove and EU leaders will meet virtually today to discuss what went so wrong so quickly and how they can sort out some of the issues. As you can imagine, it's been a busy week for our Brexit correspondent Lisa O'Carroll, who has this report. The first voice you'll hear is the EU Commission spokesman Eric Mame. In my country, we have a saying, uh, seul le pape est infaillible, you know. Uh, mistakes can happen along the way. The important thing is that you recognize them early on, in this case, so early that it was before the decision was finalized, and that you correct them. This threat by the EU to invoke Article 16 of the, the Northern Irish Protocol came as an absolute shock, absolute boat out of the blue. It first appeared on social media. A blogger had spotted it in the EU announcement over an embargo on export of vaccines. It wasn't officially conveyed to anybody. It was very apparent that Ireland had not been notified, the UK hadn't been notified, nobody had been notified. Um, and it was just so alarming that one person I spoke to said they could nearly cry that this had happened. And the reason being is that Article 16 is kind of an absolute last resort, a bit like the Internal Market Bill really last September, which would allow in the event of extreme circumstances um, with unrest in society, etc., the Northern Ireland Protocol could be suspended. It wasn't for an embargo on vaccines. Uh, these are things which happen when you are working at full speed to deal with a developing situation. The important thing is that there was a recognition at political level that there would be an issue if this clause remained in... It demonstrated to Ireland in particular that the whole issue of the Irish borders um, seem to have been lost. The sensitivities about Northern Ireland just don't seem to have been understood. 
And if anybody had stopped for a second to think Northern Ireland is a really sensitive place, that that would never have happened. And yes, they put their hands up really straight away and said this was um, a mistake and um, we were remedying it. Um, But unfortunately, with Northern Ireland, what this has demonstrated is that just as easily as the Tory party introduced the internal market bill and the Brexit clauses that offended so many, the European Commission is liable to, at the blink of an eye, to introduce something that would create a border in Northern Ireland. This is an incredibly hostile and aggressive act by the European Union bloc. And this played into the hands of the DUP and unionists and loyalists and others who are very concerned about the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol um, one month in. Now, the DUP itself had been asking for Article 16 to be engaged over the last two weeks. We've heard Ian Paisley. We've also heard the European Research Group. And this is being seen as a sort of path to getting rid of the Northern Irish Protocol completely. Now, before Friday night, they could have been considered outliers or freelancers in in Westminster um, in terms of the DUP. And it wasn't something that the party in Northern Ireland was really taking up. But come Friday night, that all changed. And we had Arlene Foster, with some justification, calling it um, an act of hostility. For years we were told after the European Union referendum vote that there couldn't be a hard border on the island of Ireland. And in one film... Being a mistake, it wasn't, but she certainly made um, headlines and was in talks with Boris Johnson on the Northern Ireland Protocol on Article 16, something that most people wouldn't even have been aware of before Friday. But now... Everybody in Northern Ireland, Ireland and the UK knows what Article 16 is. So the whole fiasco on Friday night um, happened about 24 hours after I had left a haulier's yard in Lisburn, just outside Belfast. And I had gone there to see for myself what the Northern Ireland protocol meant for just ordinary businesses trying to import food. And it was kind of a shocker, really. Basically, Brexit has changed the flow into Ireland, both in the Republic and in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland is now observing EU customs code as part of the the solution over the Irish border. But Dublin Port is also applying the full panoply of EU customs and um, regulatory checks on all GB goods coming into Dublin. So I went and spent more or less half a day. I was expecting an hour, but I was there for about half a day with... um, uh, big um, haulage company called McCullough Refrigerated Transport and they are one of the five main hauliers that deal with food basically so chilled and frozen food and the reason we opted to go for a food haulier company was because 100% of chilled frozen food that's coming into Northern Ireland is subjected to checks now in Belfast as a result of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So it was very interesting. This is how Poland and Russia relate to each other, not how Northern Ireland and Scotland relate to each other. We caught up with a chap called Peter Somerton, who's the Managing Director of McCullough's Transport. What was really quite surprising to me was the amount of data um, slash paperwork that is required for goods coming into Northern Ireland. The disruptions at the collection sites. So he talked us through um, a truck that was stuck in a depot near Warrington. Um, There were six different consignments, i.e. six different customers had goods on that truck. 
but it was held up for eight days and they were still trying to finalise the paperwork because a supplier of frozen carrots in England just would not accept that a movement to Northern Ireland was an export. It wasn't like it was pre-January to get into Northern Ireland. So, um, you know, a lot of the stuff was still coming in, he said, but it took a huge amount of effort to work with suppliers and customers to get the data correct. And the guy said, turned around and said, well, we are a haulage company. He kept saying we are a haulage company, but look at all this stuff that we have to do. And in fact, he um, has employed 20 people to deal with his paperwork, 14 to do, do the customs and six people to basically do what he said. They're calling it triage which is they're more or less like an advice centre. The only thing the North Ireland Protocol does is guarantee the single market protection. There's a sense that the UK and the European Commission have kind of allowed the Northern Ireland Protocol to come into force on January the 1st and then walked away. And I think there needs to be a lot more public and transparent discussion about the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. You cannot leave it to the extremes in politics or, you know, the people who are brave enough to put their heads above the parapet to have this discussion. It needs to be transparent. And that's one of the biggest problems in relation to the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol is how opaque the joint committees have been. I suppose the question that's facing Northern Ireland politicians as a whole is they've got four years of this. And what do you make of it? You know, I spoke to Matthew O'Toole, who's an SDLP member of the Legislative Assembly, and he was saying what they should be doing is going, right, EU, you promised us that we were unique. So all the politicians should be there reminding the EU of that and reminding Dublin of that and reminding the UK of that and saying, knock, you know, pushing down every door possible, getting as much investment into Northern Ireland as possible, because Northern Ireland is in this unique position where it has one foot in the UK and one foot in the EU. The Guardian's Brexit correspondent Lisa O'Carroll there. And as we record, my colleague Daniel Boffey is reporting that Gove is asking the EU to extend the grace periods that have delayed some border checks until 2023 to give businesses more time to adapt. Now, on Politics Weekly, we've been speaking quite a lot recently about next month's budget on the 3rd of March. One of the key decisions the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has to make is whether to keep the £20 a week uplift in universal credit that was introduced last spring. The Chancellor's keen to make some moves towards balancing the books, but with the economy likely to get much worse before it gets better and the job-saving furlough scheme due to wind up, the decision about universal credit will be critical in determining whether families can stay afloat. This week I spoke to Polly McKenzie, the Chief Executive of Demos, and Torsten Bell, the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, about the decisions the Chancellor faces. Thank you, Polly and Torsten, for joining us. Torsten, maybe you can kick us off. Rishi Sunak made this decision last year to give this £20 increase in universal credit. It was one of the big measures at the, the sort of height of the pandemic, one of the big financial measures. Why did he feel that was necessary? What's the kind of backdrop here in terms of the, the generosity of the of the welfare system? Well, the Chancellor made a big decision at the beginning of this crisis to significantly increase benefits, not just the £20 a week, but extra money for people to pay their rent and a few other measures as well. And that overall has had a number of big effects. One, it's meant that the big fall in GDP as we've shut down bits of our economy hasn't actually over the past year fed into anything like that fall for household incomes. It's protected household incomes, even though the economy wasn't producing anywhere near as much. And in particular, it's protected those on 
lower incomes, overall poverty levels as a result have actually probably fallen in the middle of this crisis. So it was the right thing to do. It also reflected a, a recognition that as you were about to shut down bits of your economy by choice, and that that would inevitably lead to higher unemployment, even if you did protect lots of jobs with the furlough scheme, that that would lead to lots of new people falling back on the welfare state and falling back on it because the government had shut down their jobs. And I think the recognition of that changed the moral, you know, the thought patterns in government somewhat when they realised, you know, the level of generosity of our basic welfare state for those falling out of work is incredibly low by international standards. And I think that was the trigger. So it's the wish to protect people overall, but particularly that you were going to see people coming on to benefits because the government had put them there. And that in that context, they couldn't defend the level of benefits at that time. Now, you can agree or not and think that you shouldn't have been able to defend the level of benefits even before that. But I think that's the logic that got us to where we were. That's probably why the government, if it could have done, I think, would have probably temporarily increased benefits just for new claimants onto welfare, but the IT system didn't allow them to do that. So it's a big deal, a very big deal. It, it happened because of both the weakness of our welfare state, but also because of the unique circumstances of this crisis. And Polly, it was coming off the back of a period, wasn't it, where we had had Conservative governments that had made a virtue almost, or certainly had made a deliberate policy of cutting back the total welfare bill. Yeah, it was a, a very deliberate part of uh, austerity measures or fiscal consolidation, whatever you want to to call it since 2010. And it's worth remembering that, you know, in 2010, it was widely seen as popular. And, you know, when you look then at the at the trackers like the British Social Attitude Survey, but what do people think about the welfare system as a whole is people are much more likely now to say that it's just that the cuts have gone too far. Then exactly as Torsten says, you throw into that a real sense that lots of people will be falling onto the welfare state through no fault of their own. Um, and talk about legacy benefits, these sort of are disappearing now, but there is this difference in the old system between job seekers allowance, JSA, and employment support allowance for people who are too sick to work, ESA. And ESA was higher, partly because it was sort of less your fault for being sick than it's your fault if you can't find a job. And partly because you're more likely to be sick for a longer period, whereas with job seekers allowance, you know, a sort of view that most people could get back to work pretty quickly if they tried. And so they, if it was just a bit below living standards for a few months, it's quite different from trying to live long term. And of course, that equation that it's probably your fault a bit if you are out of work is just obviously not the case in a pandemic or the recession that may follow. And I, I hope that that will then shift attitudes to understand that. Torsten, do you think that's right? Do you think there's been a bit of a change in the politics of some of these discussions? It's been quite interesting to see how many Conservative MPs, certainly on this £20 universal credit, but also on other issues, as Polly says, such as free school meals, where, you know, they've sort of thrown their weight behind calls to keep the £20 or to, or to provide free school meals over the holidays and whatever. Do you, do you think the politics has shifted a little bit? I think the pandemic would have shifted the politics less than some people currently think. I think the thing that has shifted the politics and I think will continue to shift them is that you don't have a government that wants its defining purpose to be seen as austerity where it can defend individual tough decisions because that reinforces its overall political and economic strategy. And in that context, and particularly when you know Boris Johnson is running on a you can have the Tories, you can have Boris Johnson, you can get Brexit, but you and you've got an end to austerity. I don't think in that context you're going to want to be making a virtue of how tough you are on areas like the ones you have mentioned on free school meals. And I think that does mean that there's no appetite for 
a return to significant cuts in benefits. I think the challenge you have got is that the political strategy of the government pre-COVID was just about viable, which was to say you've ended austerity. It's a different kind of conservative government. We're able to spend more, particularly in the north, on capital projects. But we can do that without causing problems with our traditional base by having to put up taxes or with borrowing huge amounts of money. And that might have been just about viable pre-COVID, but that is now much, much, much more difficult because of what of the effect of COVID on the public finances in the medium term. This isn't about how much they're borrowing. Polly, do you think they're going to have to fold on this £20 ultimately? You've sat in government and watched a few of these U-turns happen and not happen in your time. Is that? Do you think he's going to have to give in on it? They sort of hoped that it might be for, you know, 12, 15 weeks or something as a temporary measure. And so I can understand the concern about baking in an emergency decision, partly because, you know, if you're going to spend six billion odd on the welfare state, is this actually the precisely the best way to do it? I'm not sure that it is. And nevertheless, the political pressure is extremely difficult here. I think they're certainly going to have to extend it. I mean, one thing they could do is simply say that it, they've brought forward several years of increases uh, and that there will therefore be a freeze for many, many years to come. Torsten, you, you've done, you, Resolution Foundation has done work, hasn't it, about how much difference this money makes. What impact does it have on poverty levels, for example, if you, if you don't renew it? The, the decision on this £20 will probably define the distributional outcomes of this whole parliament. It will be what decides how bad things are for the poor, because almost nothing else that happens on wages and employment can have as big an effect uh, at the bottom of the income distribution as this will have definitely other policy decisions can't and i think if you one way of thinking about it is if we go ahead with this cut then there's a decent chance that child poverty has risen by say 700,000 by the middle of this parliament so these are really material effects it's a targeted takeaway from you know the bottom 30% of the population this is 6 million households 17 million people and it and it will determine whether if poverty fell during this crisis because of what the government did to support poorer households and, and if I was there I'd be trumpeting that more and if they go ahead with this cut then poverty will be rising through this uh, decade and might get back to the levels we saw in the 1990s when poverty was a much more active political issue and I think the one really important thing to understand I think sometimes people say to me well look this was this is just a debate about taking away a temporary increase so why is it such a a big deal. I think the problem with that is that it pretends that history started at the beginning of April last year. But the truth is that the changes in benefit policies over the previous years, particularly the post-2015 benefit cuts and benefit freezes, have hugely transformed the incomes of our poorest households. So it's not like you're just debating whether or not to take away a temporary uh, freeze. It's whether you're debating to take away the plaster you needed to stop a really bad wound getting much worse. And so ripping that off is much worse than just taking away a temporary change. Polly, you talked about the idea that if you were going to stick six billion pounds, I think it's six billion pounds a year, isn't it, into the, into the welfare system, this might not be the best way to do it. Have, have we got a well-designed welfare system? Does universal credit work as well as it should have done? Are there, are there other ways to spend that money? Universal credit was designed to just smooth the pathway into work for everybody so that it was always worth taking additional hours. And it's got this taper rate so that it doesn't matter how many extra hours or how many extra pounds you earn, there's a sort of smooth pathway. And under the legacy systems, you would sometimes get situations where it was sort of worth five pence to work another 
three hours and then the next three hours you work was worth kind of 30 pounds and so it didn't make much sense and was was confusing often and so that's the idea behind universal credit but particularly post 2015 things like that taper rate or the work allowances or the childcare allowances and crucially I think most importantly the amount of money if you're in the private rented sector that you're allowed to claim for your housing kind of allocation part of it has just been squeezed down and we need to think I think quite comprehensively about the amount of money that we're putting into the system as well as the design there are you know costs like childcare costs like housing benefit costs like fuel which particularly if you're in a poorly insulated home people people do need more help with but you know in the end it comes down to that macro decision of how much money are you willing to invest in supporting incomes at the bottom and the rise of working poverty in particular is something where public attitudes really have shifted about the amount of money that ought to be being invested. And whilst we shouldn't pretend that the pandemic has somehow changed everybody's attitudes so that we're all kind of Corbynistas now or anything, I think you can see in a range of different research, including stuff we've done at Demos, but a shift in the views about how much money ought to go into supporting incomes and the people's tolerance of destitution, which is becoming and will become more visible and therefore more politically salient. Yeah, Torsten, do you you think that's right? It it helps that more people have dropped onto it than ever expected to and and have experienced it in a different way. In a way, I suppose it's surprising almost that the system didn't fall over, isn't it? I mean, the number of claims absolutely rocketed, didn't it, in those early days of the pandemic? It wouldn't have been that surprising, given what we know about the computer system and so on, if it had fallen over. I think on the administrative side, I think universal credit has done very well during this crisis. I think that's true in terms of the speed of processing. It's definitely true in terms of the volume of processing where we've seen a huge increase, millions more people flowing onto universal credit in the beginning phase of this crisis. And if you contrast that to the scenes we saw in Spain or in the US where we saw people queuing outside, you know, the equivalent of job centres to sign on for benefit support, all of that Almost all of it happened online and happened quite quickly in the UK. So I think they they did a really good job and the system did a good job. I think this then comes down to just the amount of cash in the system and what you know whether you can maintain the level of low levels of benefits we had during the pre-crisis era. I'd say you know there are some change. You know the Conservatives are now representing a lot of seats in more seats in some parts of the the North and the Midlands than they were in the past, and those areas do have. 50% 50% more, you're more, 50% more likely to be receiving universal credit in those places than you are in, say, the southeast of England. So this is, it is a change in whose people's constituents um, are. The, um, but again, I think, you know, this isn't just about the politics of this. It's also just about the, the phasing of the crisis. I mean, unemployment is going to be rising in the months ahead, not falling. And so the idea that you increased universal credit because you were worried about unemployment last April but then you're going to remove the £20 a week just ahead of an increase in unemployment that the OBR thinks would be in the region of 800,000 jobs as the furlough scheme is wound down in the middle of this year doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think my view is the government is going to end up continuing the £20 a week. It's going to do that mainly because of the short-term pressure and because of that rising unemployment that's to come as we maintain restrictions, as we get a grip of the virus. And then I think the row about the longer-term future of the welfare state will continue. Yeah, I think that's right. And Polly, just stepping back, what else should Rishi Sunak be thinking about? His budget's in about a month's time, isn't it? I think they were hoping it would be at a point at which the government could be looking forward to lifting restrictions. We don't quite know whether that's going to be true or not, but but it will be the sort of post-pandemic budget where he will be hoping it be, should be the post-pandemic budget. What should he be thinking about? I think 
he needs to go back to that core agenda around leveling up. But instead of just thinking about leveling up as something that happens to places, to think about it as something that needs to happen to people. We've seen the way that particularly the financial fragility and the health fragility of people in, in the bottom kind of quartile has contributed to a kind of systemic problem, systemic fragility, a lack of resilience for the country as a whole. And actually, if you can find ways to level up the places that were left behind and support people's finances and a health inequality for people at the bottom, I think you'll find, obviously, you'll benefit those people, but also create a more resilient country as we move out of this crisis. Yeah, he's got a tough, a tough month ahead. Polly McKenzie, Torsten Bell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra, where Jonathan Frieden speaks to the former UK Foreign Secretary David Miliband about what the foreign policies and humanitarian priorities should be for the Biden administration. But for now, I want to thank all our guests, Sonia Soda, Lisa O'Carroll, Polly McKenzie and Torsten Bell. The producers are Danielle Stevens and Amy Leibovitz. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.